Welcome to episode 6 of our 2021 podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum, and Caroline White. In this podcast, we'll be continuing the theme of transformation catalysts, which we explored in last month's podcast with Sandra Waddock. This month, my co-host, Sean O'Conloin, interviews Steve Waddell, who's the lead steward of the Global Bounce Beyond movement, which accelerates initiatives working to make regenerative, life-centred economies realisable at scale as next economies, communities. Steve has a PhD in sociology and a master's in business administration from Boston College and is the author of numerous books. We'll go over to the interview now. So, Steve, I'd like to start with your own journey and the various strands of your work and your interests. Could you take us back to what might be the sources of these interests and how they've emerged over the years? Well, I've always been interested in, I guess, what I would call social justice or equity. Um, I'm now 67, um, so I think going back to the 70s, what I was doing, and I worked as a freelance journalist in, for a few years, and it was around similar issues, community health and well-being, etc., and uh, worked for a labor union uh, for 10 years. Uh, this is all in Canada, and did things like started a Labor Day parade, which was just great. I, in 1981, was the first person I ever met or known of who got same-sex spousal benefits as a gay man for my partner at that time. And during the 80s, I worked very much with a group of people who were transforming the world's largest community credit union, Vancouver City Savings in Vancouver. And we were transforming it for, as a board of directors that replaced, board of directors was fine, it was just there was no real vision there. Um, and our vision was about shifting from a focus upon provision of a very high quality banking services to being the steward for the community's well-being economically. And over 10 years, we had a large number of innovations to shift the organization into that role. In, in the Canadian setting, it's very unusual. Credit unions are very important in large financial institutions. They have about 20 to 25% of the assets on deposit. So it might be the largest of any banking sector in the world that's in the cooperative uh, sector. And then I came to Boston in 91, wanting to visions about how to develop this at a much larger level, this sort of sense that business and society needed to really shift their relationships and uh, felt that Boston College was a good place for me to learn something more about that. And also I came with the idea that I would start something like a, uh, an institute on business and society. The former education sort of idea, uh, I got a joint degree, MBA, and a doctorate in sociology. And in the latter, I started an executive management program that was really uh, wonderful. Even today, it would be considered very avant-garde. It was about bringing executive level people into a work-based program. So it's for full-time working people 
to bring about change in their organization, transformation of some aspect of their organization or community. And then I started working globally with an NGO that was particularly focused on as a capacity development organization for NGOs globally. It was a small institute, but it was very influential. And I got funding from MacArthur Foundation, Ford Foundation, from USAID to basically spend a few years working around the world on what we were calling at that time um, intersectoral services. So I was the director of intersectoral services, which meant developing uh, change strategies that were based on the need to engage business, government, and civil society. And in 1999, uh, I had a call from the World Bank because of that work, and they asked if I would make a modest contribution to a report that went to Kofi Annan, who was Secretary General of the UN at that time, on the future of global governance. And people living at that time might remember that there was tremendous pressure upon the UN to transform itself. Well, uh, that's not going to happen, right? I mean, it's not a transformable institution. It's not even a reformable institution, hardly. But uh, Kofi Annan realized there were other ways to approach global governance. So that's what he was really interested in. And that led me to over a decade of work focusing upon the evolution of a concept about uh, institute, what I call an institutional innovation for transformation that I call global action networks. And these are global multi-stakeholder networks that are focused upon a particular change challenge. So the Forest Stewardship Council, the Global Water Partnership, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, uh, Marine Stewardship Council, the Global Reporting Initiative. Uh, it's really a, an organizing innovation. We had some very early examples of this, like the Red Cross, you know, which dates back uh, over 100 years. But it wasn't after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was a whole series of efforts in this direction that were at a totally unprecedented scale. And out of that, a new type of organization was developed to be able to address global challenges. One of them for the UN was the Global Compact, um, which I did work with too. So it's bringing together UN um, back in those days in the, in the aughts, um, early aughts, uh, people refer, the UN referred to anything that was not government as a non-governmental organization. So business itself was referred to as a non-governmental organization. Uh, today, we think of it as a civil society organization. But the UN was trying to figure out how to engage business in the UN's agenda. And it was from that that the Global Compact was formed as a multi-stakeholder collaboration as well. So it's an example of what I call global action networks. In the last 10 years, I've really focused much more categorically on being much more hard-nosed about transformation as a distinct type of change. So when I talk about transformation, I distinguish it from incremental change, which we use the word incremental in a very specific way. Uh, we mean doing more of the same. So if you can imagine it's increasing energy efficiency, it's still using carbon-based fuels, but can we get more energy out of each unit of carbon? Then there's what we call reform type of change, and that's changing something about the way the rules work or the structures work. 
So it would be like eliminating carbon subsidies as a reform. What we mean when we talk about transformation, it's focused very much on fundamental shifts in power, in mental models, mindsets, values. So sustainable energy is a transformation, right? You're not, so you've shifted your goal from simply developing energy to developing energy that's in alignment with nature. I mean, to take it to a, a logical conclusion. So I ended up working in that area a lot. And for instance, did work in the global energy sphere. People were confused about how to think about their relationship, what I called an energy change ecosystem at that time, that's the way I framed it. And so I helped them understand the ecosystem of change that they were working in. We did uh, some significant work intellectually around identifying what we call spheres of change. So it's always, um, my work is focused upon trying to develop a comprehensive picture of change. So for example, with spheres of change, the core question is why do we have transformation arising? And where does that, that imperative, that energy come from? So in the spheres of change perspective, we try to think of it comprehensively. We say, well, there's several layers here. One is from the individual perspective, we can actually have new ideas that arise, new values that arise, new insights that arise that can lead to transformation. So you can think of the Christian, early Christians, that was a transformation in society, introducing the Christian ethic in the Roman Empire. Then there's the technological change, which is what people always talk about today. And you can see that um, computer technology has fundamentally changed the way we relate to one another and the way we think of the way the world works. People talk about networks today and they automatically think of a computer network. <laughs> so there's lots of mental models that have come out of that, for example. And then um, beyond technology, there's is social structures and institutions. So this is dealing with how do we create new organizations or that there's a social imperative that is the current organizations cannot address properly. And then there's um, what Sandra focuses on, which is memes and cultures and values. You know, how do we stop smoking? There was, of course, a lot of interaction in all these. How did gay marriage rights arise? It had to do with some fundamental cultural shift that did not just happen by itself. It happened interacting with the individual sphere where individuals said, I want to be able to do this, and interacting with the political sphere as well. And then beyond that is the natural environment sphere, uh, which we would certainly associate a lot with climate change today. Of course, the important thing is that these things interact, right? We have climate change because we have technology. But my major point is that taking a comprehensive understanding or approach to transformation leads to a lot of whole system insights in the language of today. So the Americans tend to focus upon individual historically, right? It's about the individual, you create the hero, and they can take on any type of challenge in the world. And that's where you're going to get the key motive for solutions. And the Europeans, for example, tend to come from an institutional perspective, and they think it's all about how we organize our government and, and, and our relationships and institutions. So these things also have uh, cultural components. So in different contexts, 
there's different values. But just to say that if you understand the comprehensive picture, then you can start to understand the change imperatives as emerging all the time around us. It's like this, this great cauldron of activity that's happening around us. And these different imperatives are arising out of this cauldron. And it's not a question of us, in my mind, for somebody who is interested in transformation. I, I want to move the world in a certain direction. You know, I want to support the world moving to its highest potential and greatest ideals. And so looking at that cauldron that's always generating energy, how can we use those energies that are being generated in a way that can take us towards our highest aspirations, ideals, potential? And so that's sort of the way I currently frame my work. How would you play transformation catalysts in that picture? And particularly, I think your current work is focusing a lot on, if you like, global transformation or global networks or global communities. So how do you see that work today? And maybe you might give some examples of what you're involved in yourself. Well, um, some people do see me as focusing upon global. Uh, I've learned to call it the cosmo-local. <laughs> So, for example, a lot of people will say, unless you're focused upon the community and meaning a geographic local community, you really can't feel a change. What I always point to is that, yes, that's what I thought, too, when I worked at the credit union. And we did indeed do some very amazing things. But then there are national level rules about the way a credit union can work. And indeed, there's global rules about the way it can work. There's the Basel institutions and accords. So you're in this tight web of accountability from these institutions and powers globally to locally. So I think that it requires a multi-layered approach to change. So uh, tr just to say that global action networks are trying to deal with that multi-layer level of change as well. What I'm working with now, uh, such as with Bounce Beyond and developing strategies to new economic paradigm is uh, working with the possibility of transformation catalysts and some examples that are arising that are attracted to this idea of a transformation catalyst. So the core understanding is in transformation is that there are lots of efforts around in any community, around any issue, for example, we have a community we're working with in Devon, in the southwest coast of England. We have the global seafood community that we're working with around a particular issue. There's a large number of change initiatives in any of these, around any issue or any community. How do they relate to one another? That's the core to systems thinking. Um, and when you think of it then, you can actually imagine that there is actually what we call a transformation system. And it's a transformation system which comprises all of those activities and initiatives that are trying to move us in a certain direction. So they have a shared value and a shared sense of direction. So you can think of any issue today or any community and you could immediately have some ideas come to mind about organizations that are trying to do that. And the problem is that we are still organizationally and in terms of our mental models, largely grounded in a independent initiative or independent organization sort of uh, way of thinking. 
And then sometimes we graduate to the network level and think, how can we network organizations that are similar to us? And then uh, sometimes we move to a movement level, which is how can we bring together people who are wanting to do something similar or feel a certain inspiration? A transformation catalyst incorporates and transcends all of these forms because it's looking at all of the types of energies and initiatives that are trying to shift our organizations in a shared direction. It would include interest in working with those that are taking a collaborative approach, you know, saying that we have to get in the room together to figure out how to change this system and then take collective energy to collective action, you know, along the um, global action network tradition. But you also have uh, social entrepreneurs. Uh, these are people who are saying, oh, you can go and talk all you want together. I don't have time for all that talk. I'm going to just go out and show you what it looks like and give you a demonstration of the next economy's business. And then you have people who are, are what we call the warriors, the people who are on the street, like Extinction Rebellion. They don't focus upon developing the solution, but they provide energy into the system. So this, there's this tremendous pressure to keep moving ahead rather than bureaucratize, for example. And then you have people who are working internally within a system, such as those working to try to transform business. You know, a weak form of, of it is with the social responsibility move. And so this is a holistic view of four different strategies that we see a common to any transformation I've looked at. Some transformations, one strategy is more important than the other, and they wax and wane, but they're all present in terms of the energy in a transformation. So when you want to bring these together, we do not know how to do this very well um, yet. And so I pose the desire of these transformation catalysts as trying to figure out how to work with all of the energy of all of these different strategies to be able to achieve these huge transformational goals. So in the 1990s, I was at the forefront of working on the issue of how do you get business, government, and civil society to work together. And in the 1990s, people said, you know, early 90s, people would say, you're crazy. You can't get them to work together. They're in natural conflict. Uh, well, we found ways to do that. You know, Global Action Networks is a way to do that. So today we're up to this new challenge of a new round of institution building that will be able to bring to the forefront all of our power and systems thinking around these issues, around these change challenges with a new way of organizing. And that's what a transformation catalyst is essentially doing in my mind. It's bringing together, finding ways to mobilize this very diverse energy and work across the societal field to bring about change, um, such as what we're doing with these paradigm shift. You asked for some examples. So we're working, for example, with the global seafood arena. Well, it's really the major members of that community in North America and Europe, but that of course, does have a huge influence globally as well. And they used a sustainability framework. They say we're trying to create sustainability for seafood. Of course, different people use different frameworks to be able to achieve their goals. We're working with people in Costa Rica. They use a regenerative framework. People in Canada use what they call a social purpose business framework. The people in Devon have focused upon a bioregion. 
and how to bring the bioregion to life. So people are using these different frameworks, donut economics, etc. And in the Bounce Beyond work, we're saying that all of these are early innovators. They're really doing the hard work of trying to reorient our society and a change towards a new economic paradigm. And that the early innovators we've noted tend to organize around particular labels like donut economics or regeneration or whatever, sustainability. These are all important, but they, at the basis of them, um, as we've just done, Sandra's been involved in the work too, uh, we've identified that there's a common set of values. They're all trying to move the world in a shared direction. So is there any way that we can work across these labels to be able to uh, deal with the complexity, the scale, the diversity that we're all trying to address and support to be able to really shift the economic paradigm. So that's the really big picture question that we're investigating with Bounce Beyond. I want to put a context, a particular context on, if you like, a sense of urgency around this. As I speak to you now, Ireland is basking in record summer temperatures. For the most part, people are enjoying it. But there's a kind of a slight worry that it mightn't be all that healthy if it lasts a little bit too long. And last week in Germany and Belgium and the Netherlands, they had these catastrophic rainfalls. And Angela Merkel in the newspapers today, I was reading, she regrets not having taken much more political action around climate change. A picture that you paint there about working almost from the bottom up to uh, the global transformation of society. As you look to the future, how optimistic are you that these really major societal transformations, including the whole COVID pandemic and all the other things that are going on, that they can be addressed? And is your approach, this approach of transformation at multiple layers and using multiple actors, is that the way forward? Is that the solution? Is that where we should be focusing? Well, I think the record of people working with the hypothesis that government's going to save us or intergovernmental agencies or business uh, have a lot of challenges to, um, in evidentiary challenges to that being the real possibility. When I wrote my last book before it was published in 2016, A Change for the Audacious, A Doer's Guide. I had some depression because I felt 2014, 2015, I was feeling um, there's no way we're going to address the scale of challenge in time from a climate change point of view, for example. And what can I do in that context? So me as an individual who knows something about change, something about networks, something. So the idea that emerged for me at that time was to develop a global network that was linking resilient communities. So there were certain values that were embedded in that network. One was entrepreneurship. I don't want to, uh, the network's not going to work if there's not a sense of actually going out and doing new things and doing that energetically. One is resilience. Um, that is being able to deal with large fluctuations. One is a shared sense of values. Another is a sense, I, I don't want to collapse to a, a local village, right? <laughs> I, I want to continue this richness that we have globally. 
So that's really where this work has come from that I'm focused on right now. How do we create these pockets of the future and connect them in a way that they can really start to displace the current system in the face of what we're going to, and we are currently, and we will be experiencing a lot more, we will be experiencing it as destruction of chaos. There's absolutely no way out of transformation has to do, people like to focus on the creative, the, the new, the innovative, what we're constructing. Transformation has to do with destruction, you know, taking apart, and that's painful. You lose lots, and I don't see any way out of that. And so what I'm focused on is trying to support those islands of the future to emerge and the core logics in them that will support their spreading throughout the world beyond this inevitable destruction that's going to grow a lot more than what we have today. So I don't know that that's the right strategy, working at the local level and what I'm doing, but it's what I think the worst is to do nothing. Or it could be also keep on trying to do, like getting more international agreements about something or other and focusing upon that, which has historically proven terrible. It's record. Um, so you could say the worst is keeping on trying to do the same when you've failed. It's failed to produce the desired results. But that's what I'm doing because that's what makes sense for me and it gives me hope and inspiration and in talking with people like yourselves and these people in these communities who are doing so marvelous things. I know I read the New York Times daily, and it's a very short read these days because it's really what I think of um, documenting the decline of the current system. It, because it's a newspaper, and most newspapers are, they see the decline of the system that they are part of. <laughs> and so that's what they focus on. But my daily life is focused upon the most marvelous uh, experiences with people who are doing incredible things like starting new currencies that are really designed around this new type of value system. People don't think obviously, oh, a currency is designed. Yeah, well, that's one reason we have the results that we have because the currencies we have today are designed around certain debt instruments about certain ways of increasing the amount of currency, et cetera, et cetera that are leading to the outcomes we've got. The marketplaces we have are based in certain values that other marketplaces are evolving. Some very fantastic examples. So there's lots that's happening that's very inspiring and I encourage people to focus upon that. But that does not mean I don't appreciate the other type of energies. You know, it's not just about the social entrepreneurship and the creation, it's about really People might be aware of fish spiracy, a critique that was on the movie about the problems in the fish industry. That was a great example of a warrior video. You know, it was just about continual critique, 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 and saying all of these efforts that people say are going to save us are just not working. You know, we've got to do more. That was so valuable to do. You know, I could see in the fisheries arena that we work with, which is working with all of the leading change agents, that that is what the message is they have to hear. Leading change agents, what you're doing, it's not enough. You know, many ways you're becoming part of the problem because you're simply, you found your niche and now you know how to make money out of what you're doing and the way you're measuring or doing something. You've got to continually change yourself. 
It's not just about expecting others to change. So that's the energy that we're trying to bring in as an imperative is to continually innovate with greater energy and focus about the scale of change that's needed and to have everyone who's part of the change system take great joy in that. It's the matter of joyous recreation is what I always talk about. If we can get into this flow of joyous recreation and experience that in our lives, in spite of all of the decay that we might experience, that will sustain us to really live into our highest potential. That was Steve Waddell, lead steward of the Bounce Beyond movement and author of numerous books on transformative economic change, being interviewed by Sean O'Conline. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends on social media and spread the word about our series, Bridging the Gaps. Please tune in also at the end of August for our next episode. Many thanks once again to Steve Waddell for his participation and as always to Leisha Kelly for her music on the heart. <laughs>